the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 2, it is a privilege to welcome a guest to the show. He's been on before. If anyone knows uh, more Middle East history than this man, I have yet to hear of him. His name is Mayor Jolovitz, born in Israel and uh, formerly served in the Israeli Defense Forces. He earned his graduate degree in international relations and political theory. In fact, his thesis couldn't have been more on point. The Politics of Terror in the Middle East, a study of ideology, strategy, and tactics. Amongst other affiliations, he has served with the Institute for Advanced Strategic and Political Studies, the former National Executive Director of the Zionist Organization of America. Phoenix is blessed uh, to call him um, one of their local teachers here, but he teaches nationally and internationally from his base here. Mayor, thanks for joining us on this day. Thank you. A tragic day. Tragic, a tragic uh, day, tragic week. It's going to be probably a series of tragic weeks. What, um, having observed the news and the coverage and the commentary, what has not been said that you think needs to be, or what needs to be restated that can't be said enough? Yeah, thank you for that. And I do want to get before we close to the two-state solution, because that's what everyone talks about. Okay. We're not uh, involved in the politics of the day. I do want to mention, those uh, listeners out there who know me also know that I uh, co-host a show on your uh, uh, very uh, station network called Middle East Radio Forum, which is on Sundays for an hour. And I have a signature opening when I do that. Uh, I begin, I do this every week. Ours is the radio and Internet broadcast, which offers a bold and unapologetic view of Middle East affairs. And then I say the following. I say every Sunday in Middle East Radio Forum, we recognize and readily identify the struggle between competing civilizations, ideologies, and cultures between Western values and those dedicated to upending them. Mm. And that's exactly what is in evidence today. Exactly that. We have a clash of civilizations that most people in the West, including the good guys, choose to ignore. Uh, that they don't realize that the enemy, in, uh, in this particular case, we're talking about Hamas, but it's the jihadi ideologist, that it is a genocidal ideology uh, whose problem isn't with Israel. This isn't an issue that would be solved a territory for peace matter. It's, uh, it comes down to the fact that the significant part of the Arab world doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist. And if you look at the Hamas charter specifically, which was... Uh, fashion in 1988, it not only targets Israelis, as does the PLO Charter, which came before it in 1964. The Hamas Charter in 1988 actually says the target, the target are Jews everywhere in the world. Everywhere in the world. Allow me this also, Seth. People talk about, and I just heard it, in fact, on this network just a couple of hours ago, where they refer to Fatah, which is the military branch of the Palestinian Authority, as the more moderate of the two, that Hamas is the more radical of the two. 
the reason there haven't been elections in the Middle East uh, for 20 years now is because if elections were held, the people who uh, uh, the squad thinks are the victims in Gaza, these are the people who, who wholeheartedly endorse, embrace, support Hamas, the more radical of the two. But to suggest that they are really more radical is really uh, a misconception. The day after this attack that happened on uh, uh, October 7th, a day that will live in infamy, uh, certainly for um, any Israeli anywhere, Fatah came out in social media, and they, Fatah, mind you, the moderate element, and they praised the attack by Hamas. And allow me to take just three bullets from their own uh, social media sites, and I'm talking about across the board. Um, and what they did is they say, we applaud Hamas for their strike against the sons of apes and pigs. Slaughter everyone who is Israeli. And they go on to talk about the fact that they want to liberate the towns, and they list the towns in Israel proper, of course. They go on to, uh, to suggest, slaughter them by Allah. This is our final promise. Now, again, this came from Fatah congratulating Hamas for what it's doing. And it went on using some very rich and deliberate language and talking about uh, exterminating uh, the Zionist enemy. Um, and once again, as they always end, Allah willing, this is the jihad, jihad for victory and martyrdom. And they end by applauding the Hamas terrorists as uh, heroic fighters of a common cause. We seem to want to ignore that. We, I've, I've heard uh, on various shows people talking about what's the American role here, the two-state solution, uh, the two-state solution, of course, presupposing that there's going to be a Palestine. Well, anyone who has a pulse and an IQ must understand that the notion of Palestine, an entity, is basically a confederation of two elements. One is the West Bank, or as it should be called, Judea and Samaria, and the other is Gaza. Those are the two elements, territories, which combined will be Palestine. So anyone after this who actually believes that there's any life that should be left in the discussion of a two-state solution is either truly anti-Semitic or just truly stupid, because a two-state solution presupposes giving Hamas, these butchers, Nazis no less, uh, a state of their own, a state of their own. And just the, the fact that I mentioned Nazi, and I'll, uh, I'll end at least for the moment with this sentence or this comment, and it's important, it's a personal one. My, both my parents were Holocaust survivors. My father survived 13 camps. Uh, he survived a number of death camps as well. He was liberated from Mauthausen in Austria on May 5, 1945. Three years later, my father was in the IAF, in the Israel Air Force, <laughs> a very, um, a very uh, poor Air Force, one would say. And... Um, and he fought, of course, in the War of Independence. When I was still a young lad, my father said to me, um, we're fighting the same enemy. They are Nazis. They just happen to be wearing a different uniform. Of course, I've too, as a historian, that. Mayor, thank you for that opening. We're talking with Mayor Jolovitz, uh, J-O-L-O-V-I-T-Z. It would be no mistake in understanding, too, and knowing as well, that in the 1930s and 1940s, the very representatives of this community were in league with Adolf Hitler, were they not? 
Exactly right. Right. And, uh, and, and we're quite proud of it. In fact, in some of the Arab literature, which they themselves print, they said that it was, it was the Arab side that actually gave Eichmann the idea that a final solution could be more readily fashioned if they turned to, a, um, um, a, to technology rather than killing Jews the way they did in 1941 and 1942, that there had to be a more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, efficient method of killing Jews. And the Arabs have often taken uh, pride in it, which is remarkable because um, the, uh, the, the word that's thrown by these leftists, the progressives, uh, the people who are today dancing and joining uh, the celebration of Hamas as uh, freedom fighters, they call them, and what have you, are the people who love to throw the word fascist around. Well, if, there was any, if there's any element in the Middle East that supported at any time in history, modern history, the fascist movement with the Arabs. It was the Arabs. There is, uh, there is enough uh, available on the Internet for people to do their own research, should they doubt anything Mayor Jolovitz or I just said. Just Google Grand Mufti and Hitler. You will see uh, copious, exactly. copious evidence and copious pictures. Uh, Mayor, well, sorry to do this online, uh, uh, over the air with you. What, what is your time frame? Can you stay a little bit longer? Because I have a break I can, coming. Yeah, I can stay as long as you need me to. Thanks, because what I'd like to pick up with you on the other side of this break is how we can intellectually understand and frame some of this. I'll get to some other facts on the ground that you're expert at as well. But when we talk of this notion of clash of civilizations or competing civilizations, of course, I almost wonder there, too, if it's not like using the phrase two-state solution, if there, too, that very phrase may put us off on the wrong track. The clash of civilizations presumes civilization on the other side, which is to say presumes civility mm-hmm. on the other side, which is to say presumes an absence of barbarism on the other side. And I think that uh, any notion that we're not dealing between one, a civility and a civilizing force versus barbarians would have been stripped clear over the weekend. And I wonder if on the other side of this break, you might address yourself to that. Absolutely. Mayor Jolovitz is my guest. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Mayor Jolovitz, among other things, is the co-host of the Middle East Radio Forum, heard here on this station every Sunday. He is a uh, veteran of the um, IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, and uh, my favorite Middle East historian, uh, probably knows more Middle East history than anyone I've ever read. Delighted we could have him today, although not because of the occasion. Mayor, we were talking just briefly on the break. You've been teaching about wars and conflicts in the Middle East for decades, too many, unfortunately. This one you said is different. Would you care to expand on that? Sure, it's very different. In fact, let me reference, if I may, a perspective of Gaza. Uh, Israel, um, in 1967, the Six-Day War, took possession of Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip, they used to call it. Uh, It's a small area. People don't realize it's 141 square miles. Israel decided in August of uh, 2005, he was Ariel Sharon was prime minister. He was in uh, trouble politically in Israel. He was considered a right-winger. And he decided, in order to curry favor, somehow... Um, obtained some kind of quid pro quo from the newspapers who were calling for his uh, political demise, he decided that he was going to do a unilateral disengagement 
from Gaza. Yeah. And when I say unilateral disengagement, it means that the Israelis were going to leave everything. They, in fact, tore down 24 of their own Jewish settlements. Um, their soldiers dragged out seminary girls who were studying in Gush Atif. Uh, he was stricken by a stroke, uh, was not able to finish the job. Ehud Olmer finished the job. Unilateral disengagement meant that from August 2005, there was no Jewish presence, there was no Israeli presence, there was no soldier IDF presence in Gaza. And yet, if you listen to the left-wing tripe, you'll still hear about the fact that Gaza is being occupied. Nonsense. But with that as a background, in 2005, there were four, and what we see today is the fifth, operations. They used to call them operations. They finally are calling it a war. In response to what? Uh, thousands of rockets that have been fired by Gaza, which was now in the hands solely of the Arabs, uh, and it was Hamas. And allow me just to give a couple of numbers to get perspective so I can answer your question about how this is different. Yeah. The first Gaza operation, Israel finding the need to go in militarily into Gaza uh, to quiet the rockets that were being launched against Israeli towns, was in December 2008 and January 2009. I believe it lasted 22 days. It was called, they always have this, these beautiful names, Operation Cast Lead. Yeah. Israel gives the names, yeah. Operation Cast Lead. Right. 13 Israelis died. 13. Israel walks out, and what do they have? And this is the dirty word that we dare not hear again, ceasefire. Mm -hmm. 2012, Operation Pillar of Defense. Rockets had fallen into Israel. Israel goes in again. Eight days long, six, six Israelis dead. Ceasefire. Bigger, 2014. Quite a barrage of rockets fall into Israel. Israel launches Operation Protective Edge. 50 days long, 71, which in Israel, I mean, Israeli terms is a disaster. 71 Israeli deaths. And at the time, we were told, Bibi Netanyahu, of course, this should end all uh, um, ideas on the part of the Arabs that they might inflict damage on Israel. 2021, Operation Guardian of the Walls, in response to 4,369. I lecture so often, tragically, that I actually remember how many missiles were, were launched at Israel. 4,369, Operation Guardian of the Walls, lasted 11 days, 13 Israeli deaths. And then we have this. They gave it a name already, but they called it a war now. In, initially, the first 48 hours, it was called Operation Swords of Iron. And I can't tell you how long it is going to last because it'll be prolonged, but I can tell you that the death count, which today is well north of 900, puts something into perspective that nobody seemed to understand. In the 1967 war, the Six-Day War, where Israel, in fact, took the territories, Israel was engaged in a war, tanks, jets, against three major armies, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. 700 died on the part of the Israelis. In one day, October 7th, a couple of days ago, a bunch of terrorists who came in with bulldozers, and if you see them, some of them with flip-flops, there was an operation, there was a problem on the part of the Israelis that will be investigated, and five, six, nine months from today, there will be a commission of inquiry, and heads will roll. And we won't talk about it today, I'll gladly uh, analyze it uh, in the future. But to, to, to understand that in Israeli terms, that 900 died 
in one day. And, and perhaps died is not, were murdered in one day. And we're finding 200, there was a, people have seen this, there's no need for me to give the news because they saw the news. But there was a party, a rave, and what's remarkable is it was, most, it was mostly, almost, almost exclusively, peace activists. And they were there, these are the peace activists, the people who believed in the two-state solution, people who believed that we want peace. And they were dancing their rave, the trance dances and everything else, and some motorized gliders came in, some jeeps came in, some... Uh, um, some motorcycles came in, and of the 600 people who were there, 260 were slaughtered. And that's the word, they were slaughtered. Now, I, I mentioned to you during the break that I've seen over 600 videos already. The 600 videos that I've seen, most of them were videos produced by Hamas. They were boastful about the manner by which they were murdering these Jews, slaughtering them. Uh, you would see uh, you know, a video of, of the people being taken in, and then they would show you on the same video, a short clip, two-minute clip, a lifeless body, naked, of a woman, who they, and forgive me for, huh, for being honest, who they say that they raped after she was murdered. This is the, the clash of civilizations, and you're right you know, to suggest, is this really civilization? Um, people just do not understand the nature of the beast and I choose that word specifically, they don't understand the nature of the beast. There's a story that I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think that many people have heard. Uh, you know, I, I, I think Trump used it once when he was still a candidate. I think it was 2016. Uh, it was the scorpion and the frog. Yeah. We've heard that. Sure. Uh, and it really applies today. For those of the, uh, in the audience who don't know this, it's a story about a scorpion who asks the frog to carry him across the river on its back. And the frog, of course, hesitates out of fear that the scorpion might sting him. So the scorpion argues that if he stings the frog in the middle of the water as they try to cross it, well, they'll both drown. So it would make sense for him to give them a ride. The frog agrees, allows the scorpion on its back. Halfway across the river, scorpion does indeed do what scorpions do. He stung the frog. And as they're both about to go down and drown, the frog asks the scorpion, why did you stink? We're both going to die. And the scorpion, we're told and reminded, replies, I'm a scorpion. It's my nature. You know, I have to take a quick commercial break, Mayor. If you can stay with us, I would very much sure. appreciate it. Mayor Jolovitz is our guest. And uh, that is kind of an interesting uh, story to tell just as I'm going to break because I was on a call this morning where someone was talking about the animal behavior that we saw this weekend in Israel, and I said, I'm sorry to say, but I've seen most of the footage available that one can see. It's an insult to animals. It's an insult to animals to call what was done to these innocents animal behavior. I'm sure you agree. We'll be right back. To the Seth Leibson Show. Welcome back. Mayor Jolovitz is our guest. He is a, uh, an expert and teacher and educator on Middle Eastern history graduate degree in international relations and political theory, formerly with the Institute of Advanced Strategic and Political Studies, formerly the National Executive Director of the Zionist Organization of America. Mayor, you were telling me uh, a segment or two ago, I think two segments ago, that the idea of a two-state solution is as uh, fallacious as the sun rising in the um, in the West, I suppose. And 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 the notion that 
people will still be clamoring for such. And you heard from the squad that kind of nonsense over the last 24 hours. Um, Tell us, even if it were to happen, what something like that would look like. I have a rough idea uh, of what it would look like. That rough idea is another Libya, another Lebanon, post-1976, or basically another what we saw this past weekend. A one-sentence preamble to going into the two-state solution is the fact that language which we've heard, it's been ubiquitous uh, uh, with news media the last uh, 72 hours, is they talk about Hamas's attack on, uh, on Israel, an unprovoked attack. They right. kept saying an unprovoked attack. Right. The Arabs don't see it that way. They were, in fact, they are provoked. They're provoked by the fact that Jews exist in a country called Israel. That's a provocation. When the Arabs talk about the elimination, there's that buzzword, occupation, which is everything. You have to understand occupation in order to understand the two-state solution, that it's occupied. And there's a different understanding in the Western world as there is in the Arab world. When Mahmoud Abbas stood side by side, with uh, President Biden uh, just last July, and he leaned over, and it was recorded in all the media. He said, we need the United States to support us in undoing the 74 years, mind you, Israel is now 75 years old, this was last year, the 74 years of Israeli occupation. Right. That's not East Jerusalem. That's not Judea, Samaria, West Bank, is it? 74 years of occupation means Israel since its inception as a modern Jewish state. That means Tel Aviv, that means Haifa, yeah. It means everything. It means that Israel, right. Now, as far as land, people don't understand how small it is, uh, certainly in terms that we might uh, come to fathom. The the state of Israel is smaller than Maricopa County in Arizona. The state of Israel is smaller than Maricopa County um, by a thousand square miles. Um, Israel is about 8,200, Israel proper, 8,200 square miles. The West Bank, uh, the Judea and Samaria, is 2,183 square miles. When the Arabs talk about an occupation, when Israel has boasted, well, we have offered in subsequent negotiations in 96, in 98, in 2000, we've offered them 96 and the 97, and once 98% by different prime ministers, by the way, of the occupied territories, and the Arabs still said no. And it's because the Israelis purposefully, willingly, chose to ignore the fact that they aren't looking to free the 2,183 square miles which Israel thought was occupied, that that the New York Times thinks was occupied. They're talking about the occupation of 1948. What they want done is, um, is a reversal. And mind you, and I should do this, language is important. The pre-67 lines is the same thing as the 1949 armistice lines. It's exactly the same thing. So when people say that Israel needs to give up the territories and peace will follow, no, it won't, because it takes Israel back to the 1949 lines, pick up a map and take a look and see what it looks like. It's what Abi, uh, Abi Ibn, Israel's for, uh, former foreign minister, uh, an articulate man, uh, once referred to as the Auschwitz borders, that if Israel would be reduced to those borders, it would be another Holocaust. You had mentioned uh, in a quite eloquent opening that you did today 
uh, you talked, you gave a little history, and you mentioned that Israel at its waistline, uh, it, in its most vulnerable place, would be nine, it's nine and a half miles wide. Nine and a half miles. How long would it take? I could run uh, it in a little over an hour, probably. Okay, right. And a tank would do it in much less time, right. and a fighter jet does it in seconds. So let Israel... Me, yeah, let me, let uh, me take a quick I'm commercial sorry, break. We'll have a longer break. segment on the way back, but there's enough time for you to answer this question on the way to the commercial. Every May 15th or so, we celebrate most of the world uh, at least acknowledges Israel's Independence Day. What do the Arabs in Rashida Tlaib call May 15th? They call it the Nakba, which is uh, the catastrophe. That's right. And at the United Nations, on November 29th of every year, which is, the de- which is the date of the U.N. resolution, which was supposed to be the partition resolution in 1947, when the Jews, as you said in your opening, said yes and the Arabs said no, the Arabs, uh, U.N. Resolution 181, it's referred to as the Nakba, and the United Nations today, every year, November 29th, has its entire lobby decorated with a, with a pro-Palestinian, pro-Arab, anti-Israel Nakba Day. That's it. We'll be right back. All right, my producer's having a little fun with me because I overstated my mileage. Yes, no, I, I couldn't do it. Okay, fair enough. That is the $6 million man. Fair enough. Mayor Jolovitz is my guest. Thank you, David. I am shamed. Uh, Mayor Jolovitz is my guest. He is an educator. He is a histor- Middle East historian. He is uh, formerly with the Institute for Advanced Strategic and Political Studies and a veteran of the Israeli Defense Forces. Mayor, I have two questions I want to make sure we get to. Uh, one is what could allow for such uh, an event as this to have happened? What kind of intelligence or military failures or political and strategic ones for that matter? But before I get there, let me ask you a little bit about the response. Um, your graduate thesis involves the word ideology and strategy and tactics. Does the postmodern era have the... Um, Kishkis and cojones to watch the kind of war be waged that needs to be waged to have the kind of victory we need to have. Um, in other words, uh, is, is, is what Israel needs to do to finish Hamas, in the words of Nikki Haley, to finish them, mm-hmm. d- 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 does the modern psyche and mentality uh, have it, uh, have the patience and the ability to watch Israel do what it needs to do? Yeah, the answer is no. Uh, It's a great question, and I do want to go there. It's interesting that you've asked about the ideology. Um, Most people, I refer to them quite often, certainly in all the lectures. I I lecture weekly. I refer to them as the so-called experts because they are more often wrong than right. But they refer to this as, well, you know, territory for peace. Let's, where do we draw the lines? Where would, be, you know, where would be the acceptable? If you ask someone, here's a map, draw the lines that you think will be acceptable to both. It can't be done. It isn't a war of territory. It's a religious war. And if one doesn't understand that the war we're talking about is a religious war, there's no conversation to be had. When the war, when Israel went into Lebanon, uh, which was the last war, I guess one would say, it was a mini-war of sorts. 82-ish, um, 82. In 2006. 80. Oh, oh, sorry. Israel won all previous wars. Three weeks, um, three weeks into the war, and the war lasted 34 days. So three weeks into the war, I'm the National Executive Director of the Zionist Organization of America. I've got the television in my room all the time. I'm monitoring the news from Israel. Um, and because the war was on, I also had Fox News on. 
Fox News comes on, and they asked someone who was ostensibly an expert in the field, and the question was asked, why did the six-day war against three major armies end in six days? We're now three weeks into the war in Lebanon, in Lebanon against Hezbollah and, and some small... Why is it ongoing for 34 days? And Well, no, I'm sorry, at the time it was three weeks. Why is it ongoing for three weeks, and there's no end in sight? What are we missing here? And the person who gave the answer, and it was a brilliant answer, more so than the so-called experts, he happened to be nothing more than, and I don't mean to, to say this in the pejorative sense, he was a major in the U.S. Army, mm-hmm. but he knew the Middle East. And they asked him, why 21 days into the war is Israel not winning? And his answer was so simple and so true. He said, in 1967, Israel fought a military war. Today they fight a political war. Yeah. In 1967, an existential threat to Israel, Israel did not care what BBC thought. Yeah. They didn't care what some, com- uh, what some pundit was going to comment about wherever they might be sitting in the world. Yeah. It was a military war that needed to be won. In 2006, things had changed. Israel, with media and everything else, Israel was concerned about the way that the optics played. And they fought a political war. Let's minimize the casualties. In fact, Israel is doing that exactly today. I'm repulsed when I see Israeli experts, as I've seen too many of them in the last couple of days, military spokesmen, the prime minister himself, and others representing uh, the Israeli government, Ron Dermot and the others, good people, intelligent people. And they're speaking to a Western audience, and they're telling the Western audience the following. The Israeli army, the IDF, is the most moral army in the world. We go to great lengths in order to minimize the casualties on the other side. And they do. And I consider that to be an immoral thing to do. Mm -hmm. It isn't moral. When you send a message to the murderers of your children that before we bomb the building as we are, as as we speak, in Gaza, we're going to do this thing called roof knocking. It's also referred to as new roof tapping. We will drop something on the roof of a building, not an explosive, which will tell you that in 20 minutes we're returning. You've got to get your butt out because we're going to take down this building. And they, of course, leave with their color television, with their, with their computers, and Israel destroys the building. BBC shows Israel the vast destruction. Eight months ago, Israel went into Lebanon. They flew 72 airstrikes into Lebanon. Excuse me. Excuse me, into Gaza. They flew 72 airstrikes into Gaza in a three-day period in response to, uh, to rockets and missiles that were launched into Israel. Three days, 72 airstrikes. What were the casualty count? Three dead. Wow. Three dead. Why would the enemy not be bolstered by the moral enemy that isn't looking to kill us? They're just looking to... There's another part of that uh, uh, piece that I'm really troubled by. It's the other side of the coin. The, The moment that rockets fall in an Israeli town, Israel, within an hour, sends its sophisticated jets, and they take down, and they announced the same thing two days ago. What did they do? They struck an operations um, um, center. They struck a couple of munition factories, I'm using the language that they used, and in in an operations um, um, uh, headquarters. They struck them. Now, did Israel know that these places existed a day before this massacre? Of course they did. A week ago? Yes. A month ago? Yes. Why didn't Israel strike then? They actually waited until people were, were targeted. People are running... 
to bomb shelters, sleeping in bomb shelters with their children. And Israel says, oh, yes, we know where the munition factories are. We know where these rockets are manufactured. We're going to go strike. And they do. And they hit them with great precision. Why didn't they want to do it before? The same reason that they hesitated before the Yom Kippur War when Henry Kissinger uh, told Israel, if you strike first, the world's not going to be empathetic to your cause. Let, you know, take the first blow. And what he told uh, uh, Nixon at the time was, let Israel bleed a little. They'll need us more. It's a tragedy. This is not a way to prosecute a moral war. Israel needs to fight not a political war, but a military war. Israel needs to eliminate the enemy. And Bibi Netanyahu knows, by the way, that his future uh, rests on this. If I have another minute before we go to commercial break, whatever, um, one of the great commentators uh, on Israeli television, Channel 13, Tzvi Heskeli, did a piece uh, that we saw uh, hours ago. It was incredible. They showed what uh, Hamas had publicized three weeks ago. They actually showed you, using optics and using animation and everything else, how they were going to strike against Israel. And, of course, the Western world sort of just sort of like turned, yeah, okay, sure. We've seen Iran show that they're going to blow up Washington and New York, and, and they've got the graphics and bomb and all this type of thing. Well, Hamas did it also three weeks ago, and it showed step by step, literally, with visual, all the optics, exactly what they did. It was, it was the graphics showed the incursion into the, the bulldozers coming in, the motorcycles coming in. They showed rockets being fired into Israel as a diversion, as a diversion, even though they caused great damage. They showed them coming in, attacking uh, communities. And for uh, the perspective, once again, everyone thinks that these are just uh, uh, communities, Jewish communities and settlements on the border. Two of them, were the one was 12 miles in, and the other was 15 miles in. I mean, they traveled, and they did exactly. And as he did his commentary, this he has scaly fellows. Hold, hold the thought. That's the tease. We'll get the commentary on the other side of the break. One second, Mayor. Okay. Be right back. Mayor Jolovitz has been generous with his time and his brain and our guest. He is the co among other things, he is the co-host of the Middle East Radio Forum heard here every Sunday's. Mayor, sorry the break intruded. You were telling us uh, what this commentator from Channel 13 was saying. He was basically showing that Hamas telegraphed uh, quite openly uh, what they were going to do. And uh, uh, he pointed as point by point. He goes, they did this, they did this, they did this. And then he pauses and he says, where was Israeli intelligence? The best in the world, where were they? Well, Israeli intelligence, I guess I've often spoken about, especially when I speak to Jewish audiences, about the myth of Jewish intelligence. Uh, if you look at what happened in Gaza, I mean, if you talk about Gaza, Gaza, the, the residents in Gaza who want Jews dead, they get their water from Israel. They get their gas from Israel. They get their food from Israel. They get their supplies, which are supposed to be building um, human health centers. And instead, they go for tunnels, which are tunnels into Israel. They get it from Israel. Uh, Israel, they get it because Israel thinks, well, it looks good, the optics. Look what we're doing. Um, yesterday, there was a video that was shown all over the world. It was recorded, actually, a day before, and it showed uh, the a woman, the head of a clinic in Israel, a cancer clinic, close to the border. And she said, yes, I understand what they're doing right now, but we're here to deal with cancer, and our, our doors are always open. Uh, all citizens, especially children of Gaza, can come in, and we give them free service. We will help them. 
the um, the former prime minister of um, of Hamas, Ishmael Hania, his uh, his uh, niece needed heart transplant, heart operation. Where did she go? Israeli hospital. Let him in. Let him in. So Israel's generosity is not, has not been rewarded you know, with any similar quid pro quo. The Arabs want them dead. Now, why is Bibi to a certain degree to blame, or Israel, I should say, to blame both of them? In July of this year, just three months ago, there were two encampments on Israel's northern border, inside Israel's territory, encampments by Hezbollah. Israel didn't take it out, as they should have. They went to the United Nations and asked the United Nations to persuade Hezbollah to tear down encampments on Israeli property. Ramadan of this past year, which was in March and April, Hamas took over and they controlled the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They placed enormous Hamas banners, 40 feet by 20 feet, basically proclaiming the end of Israel. Israel just watched it happen. It was Ramadan. Let them do what they do. Um, when Israel receives the rocket fires, as I said, from Gaza, Israel engages in roof tapping, roof knocking, letting the Arabs know, we're coming, we're going to hit you back. And what do they do? They bomb empty buildings, mostly at night, in order to keep the casualty count down. The point that I'm making is the Arabs have taken notice. There's a Hebrew word uh, that's often used to people who come to Israel who don't understand the Middle East uh, mentality. It's called fryer. It means sucker. It means sucker. The Arabs understand this, and they consider Israel to be absolute suckers. Mayor, I'm going to end it right there for today. Stay close this week. Stay close. Let me thank you very much. I have to run. Bless you, sir. Stay well. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.